Good evening to you all. Tonight I wanted to touch on a topic that I find very interesting. And it has to do with the interplay between metta and the insight practice that leads directly to awakening. And we often think of these as being two separate practices. And certainly the instructions for each of these practices are quite different. Many of you uh, are practicing one or the other. Some of you are practicing both in a way that alternates the practices or dedicates a particular practice period to one or the other. But even though we train them in a way that is generally quite separate, they really have a lot to do with each other. You can think of the overall goal of this path as the awakening of liberating wisdom. It's wisdom that ultimately liberates the mind. But in order for that to happen, there is a role for very specific wholesome qualities in particular. The Buddha talks in the second step of the Eightfold Path about the importance of renunciation, which is letting go of sense desire as the point of existence, of realizing that the pursuit of pleasure as a primary goal or as a measure of all things really uh, leads us in the wrong direction. So we're encouraged to non-craving, to letting go, to accepting conditions, very often instead of turning all of our activities in the direction of finding sense pleasure, sense happiness. But the second thing that's included in wise intention is the cultivation of the intention of non-harming, the intention of metta and compassion and the development of that in the mind. And the presence of these two mental factors in the Buddha's uh, exposition of his path, right there in the second step, is a really big clue about their significance. He's saying if you're wondering where this path goes, where this practice goes, its direction, if you're wondering what values that should accompany you on this path, how you should relate to yourself, how you should relate to what arises in your mind. Look, right here at the beginning, renunciation, letting go, and the practice of compassion, the practice of metta. And we can see in the convergence of the path, in the end point of the path, in the mind of the Buddha, there is not only wisdom, but there is unlimited or boundless metta and compassion. So the Buddha 
had an open heart, a very open heart. And the question can come up for us, how does that come about? How does that come about in this practice path of insight practice? But before we undertake that exploration, we could ask ourselves, what is this open heart and why would you want one? And it's a real question, isn't it? Because maybe we have an idea that, well, this would be just wonderful or there'd be no fear, there'd be no anger, there would just be compassion and metta, you'd be like a saint. You know, maybe you'd be like Mother Teresa and be able to work in the slums of Calcutta and seemingly not be deterred by what you're facing, but just be able to get up and keep doing it day after day. But of course, as we now know, now that her, uh, some of her diaries are uh, out and about, that even Mother Teresa had terrible periods of dryness and doubt and even despair. And this open heart, maybe it actually is something that causes some reservations. What would that be like? Would it be a state where you could be overpowered by what you experienced, be kind of defenseless, not be able to set boundaries? Would you feel drained by the needs of others? Would you feel like you always needed to respond to what they they wanted from you on their terms? Or maybe it just seems a little bit too sweet, you know, just a little bit too pastel, a little bit too uh, girly, even for girls. (laughs) So that's the big question, you know, why would we even want that? So the second question is, where does this path of practice actually go? Does it go to an open heart? And if it does go to an open heart, how does it actually go there? What's the means? What's the process? What's the unfolding? What's the cultivation that allows that to be so or supports that? And this is a really legitimate question because if you look at the Eightfold Path, if you look at the Buddhist teachings, one one of the things that might strike you is there are some very clear delineations that are made between what's skillful and what's unskillful. Right? States of greed, aversion, delusion. These suffering states are... Uh, not to be cultivated, states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion are to be cultivated. If you look at uh, the teachings on wise effort, which are also part of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha clearly makes these discernments, makes these differentiations. And he says, you know, the unskillful things, you want to try to minimize those if they're present. You want to 
try to prevent them from arising, the wholesome states. You want to encourage them to arise. You want to sustain them and strengthen them when they're present. And when you look at the language of some of the, the other common teachings that many lay people are familiar with, like the Dhammapada, you'll, you'll hear things like, um, make an island for yourself, get right to work, become wise. When you are purged from impurity and free from mental ta- uh, taint, you will reach the noble state. Hmm. Purged from impurity and free from mental taint. So if you took this without a larger context, you might think that, well, there's, there's not much use here for anything that's not skillful, that's not wholesome. And this can create a real problem for us because when we start meditation practice, when we start with practice or we continue practice through the years, we see that the unskillful and the unwholesome is often present in the mind. Or is it just me? <laughs> so, so then the question is, how do we understand, how do we relate to this unwholesome form of experience? How do we deal with this material And it's important that we figure out how to do this, how to hold this, because we know that unwholesome states continue in the mind stream right up to the point of complete awakening, right up to the point where the mind is completely liberated, which for most of us may be you know, longer than the period of this particular retreat. (laughs) So how do do we tend to work with this unwholesome, unskillful stuff that we see arising in the mind, see as being present in the mind? So let's go over some common reactions or responses that we tend to have when we notice this present. So one tendency is to adopt a kind of perfectionism, which is a way that the mind pushes back against this, doesn't really accept its presence. So there's an important point here, which is while we are clear about what we are cultivating, we're clear about what's skillful, that's wise view, that's discernment. Clarity about what is being cultivated, what the direction of the path actually is. But there is a problem with dualistic thinking about this. And the problem with dualistic thinking is that it can lead us to a kind of resistance to and non-acceptance of what we are actually experiencing. And resistance to and non-acceptance of what we are actually experiencing when we're experiencing it is the definition of suffering. So we don't have the power to just 
cut this stuff out or rip this stuff out, rid ourselves of it, nor can we ignore it because, because if it's there, if it's, in, it's active in the mind and we ignore it, it's really going to trip us up. It's going to actually deepen our delusion because it's not being seen. So then the question is, given that this kind of deluded ignorance continues way into our process of exploration and awakening, is there some way in which this ignorance is not a complete impediment to practice? And this goes to the questions of how do we practice with what's not wholesome and what's unskillful? Now you may have noticed in yourself that when you notice what manifests in the mind stream, there's often a reaction to content. Have you noticed this? There are particular things that come up in the mind and then the mind gets very reactive in relationship to it. I was teaching recently uh, with Sylvia Borstein and her way of putting it is, you know, you're there and you're practicing and all of, it, all of a sudden you experience what she calls a shock. You experience a shock. And the way she was using the term seemed to be all of a, something, all of a sudden something comes up in the mind that, the, that is out of the regular flow of things and the mind, at least momentarily, is kind of stunned by it and can't really handle it. And there sometimes is a kind of shock reaction when we see particularly strong states arise in the mind that definitely are not along the skillful uh, axis. And this really points to the importance of compassion in practice. So sometimes we can actually recoil from or reject experiences that we find morally unacceptable. And it's not unusual for people to think once they sit down and actually start to develop some sort of connection with their mind stream, for them to think that they're actually getting worse and not better. Ever notice that? It's like, oh my God, it's like, I didn't know it was like that bad in there. I didn't know I was that fill-in-the-blank, angry, uh, greedy, uh, you know, crazy, you know, whatever words you want to put in there. And you can see that if we're very identified with what we are experiencing, in other words, there's a strong self-view that arises in relationship to this, these states of uh, greed, aversion, and delusion can be taken by ourselves as evidence of our hopelessness or of our fundamental badness. And if we don't see that the mind is basically, you know, taking a lasso or a rope and throwing it around these particular states and going, oh, these are mine, I'm so bad. If we don't see that that's happening as a conditioned process, this can really be the gateway into a downward spiral of blame and shame and then loss of faith. 
But what if the presence of these kinds of states actually means something quite different? That our relationship to these states in practice isn't so much one of trying to avert our eyes from them, to turn away from them, to not recognize them, to completely avoid them, to completely suppress them. What if actually the skillful relationship with these particular states is, instead of trying to fight with them, is to actually open the door and allow them in? So another way that we tend to relate to these states is by trying to manufacture some sort of ideal experience for ourselves. And you could call this leapfrogging or you could call this spiritual bypass. And in this version of practice, there's a a preferring of what is light and wholesome and bright. And I'm saying preferring, this is beyond a recognition of what's wholesome, but this is a kind of insistence upon its presence right here, right now, regardless of whether it's accessible. So this is a kind of closing of awareness to the acknowledgement of what's non-ideal in the mind in the present. And it's often accompanied by a self-view that doesn't allow for the experience of what's actually happening. So if you have a, a view of yourself that if anger arises in the mind or lust arises in the mind or competitive thoughts arise in the mind or hateful thoughts arise in the mind, that that makes you an irredeemably bad and evil person. You're not going to want to be opening to that or seeing that, right? You know, another way this particular version wants to Uh, play itself out is an insistence on an imagined outcome so that we have some ideal in our mind of what should be happening you know the concentration should be like this you know the mind should be tranquil the the body should be free from pain or if there's pain there shouldn't be any reaction in the mind in relationship to the pain or There should just be equanimity regardless of what thoughts are present or what what memories are present. You know, sometimes with this, we might not even be able to state what it is we want exactly, what it is that we think should be happening. But there's a felt sense that something should be happening that isn't this. Something else should be happening and it isn't this. So there's a kind of wanting there, often a kind of low-grade craving. So with this sort of situation, for instance, there might be a craving for metta to be present right now. The commitment to cultivate metta, the seeing that metta is skillful, is necessary. That's wise, that's discerning. The craving for a wholesome state in the present, that's a hindrance. 
And again, you know, if there's a strong craving for a particular wholesome state that isn't immediately available to us. The self-sense often gets involved with that too and it starts to claim experience, starts to claim responsibility for experience, right? And here again, there's, there's uh, evidence-taking, evidence-making. Well, if I don't have metta, I'm just, what kind of a person is it that goes on these meditation retreats and they don't have metta? Well, a bad kind of person goes on these meditation retreats and doesn't have metta. I must be a bad kind of person. And when we, we pull along those, that caboose of identification in relationship to these states, you can see how that makes it so high stakes to just acknowledge what's present. Right? If it's turned into a story all about me and how I am and what my capacities are and how it's going to be in the future and how it's going to unfold and right? It's adding so much to what's there. So we often see in practice we have so many ideas about what should be happening. So if we see them as ideas no problem. (laughs) If they're a kind of lens through which we attempt to override or correct the immediate experience, the practice has just gotten very complicated. There's a kind of strain there in trying to hold on to a particular thing or uh, ignore the cross currents that are actually there because we're unwilling to acknowledge them. And the result of that is the actual creation of not the letting go of suffering. So there is a different way that we can uh, view these things, but we have to train the mind to learn how to do it. So we could say, a major learning in practice is that practice is the illumination of states that are both skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. But the tendency of the mind until it's well-trained is the same as the kind of tendencies of mind you see when you're first learning meta practice. So consider what the mind does when it's first learning meta-practice for most of us. So the idea with meta-practice is we're developing the capacity to open with goodwill and care to the full range of beings, boundless goodwill, boundless compassion. But when we develop meta It's not quite so simple, is it? So, we have our favorites in metta, right? Favorite places where we want to offer metta or we're willing to extend in that kind of way and places where it's much more difficult or there's resistance or there's even really strong pushback in the mind. And those places are different for each of us. Some people, you know, the self is an easy place to do it. 
It's when you, you know, you start getting to other categories that it's problematic. For other people, maybe it's the easiest with people that you don't even know who are kind of more neutral. But for people that are close into you, there's a lot of conflict and it's not so easy. So in practicing metta, we have kind of special friends that we want to keep around and that um, it's pleasant there. In the same way, working with insight practice, there are certain states, there are certain experiences that are kind of our special friends. We like it there. We want to keep it there. Those we want to have around, those are pleasant. Then in meta practice, there's kind of neutral people. For many people, that's kind of like, kind of hard to connect, hard to even get it flowing in that particular kind of direction. There's not a lot of juice to it, maybe. So the pleasantness isn't pulling us into connection when we're working in the neutral zone. And it's the same way in insight practice, when we're practicing with a lot of more neutral Vedna, often the mind disconnects from that kind of experience and starts either looking for trouble, if it's kind of oriented towards aversion, it looks for trouble, or if it's more oriented towards greed, that looks for something that's more interesting and likely to feel more, uh, have more of a juicy, chewy center. And then with the, those beings who are in the difficult category, of course, we don't necessarily want to connect with them in order to offer them metta. We would rather that kind of get airbrushed away or that we find somebody else who's not so difficult that's only like mildly annoying in a way that's kind of endearing to offer some goodwill. And the same thing in insight practice with particular uh, difficult or unpleasant states of mind. Okay, maybe we'll hit it for a little bit, but maybe we can just redirect and bounce off it. So we see an insight practice this tendency to kind of jump over difficult or unpleasant states in order to get to an idealized version. And we also see the tendency of mind to glom on to or hold on to particular pleasant states or interesting states or novel states or self-reifying states. And this is just what the mind does, right? So this is, this is descriptive, this is not condemning, this is kind of just what it does. When you sit down and you actually watch what's going on, which is why I said earlier, sometimes when we sit down and we, we start to actually watch what the mind does, we're kind of like, oh my God, <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> it's like all this stuff comes up and then it's like fighting with this one, it wants this one, it's struggling to get this and it's pushing that away and it's like, Oh my God. So then the question is, well, is there a different way to look at this range of states and sense experiences and thoughts and emotions and all the rest of it that 
we have. So we can turn to the, the Satipatthana Sutta, which has some wonderful things in it, but we're going to talk about the Buddha's language when he talks about the third foundation of mindfulness and how to work with the mind or in particular. So he says, uh, and how monks does he regard to the mind abiding, contemplating the mind? Here he knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. He knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. He knows a great mind to be great and a narrow mind to be narrow. He knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. He knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. He knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. Now, I find the the language here really interesting. And one of the things that really strikes me about it is it's so completely matter-of-fact, isn't it? I mean, it's like completely devoid of judgment. It's just like he knows the mind to be this way, or maybe it's the opposite, or maybe it's this way, or maybe it's the opposite. He, he talks about the mind, the mind. You notice what is absent in the descriptors. He doesn't say, my mind. He doesn't say, he knows the mind to be um, experiencing the unskillful state of anger. He knows the mind to be resting in not angry. Right? So the discernment is all there. He's just saying, well, just know what it is. Know what it is. Which one of these is it? Matter of fact, clear, simple. No entanglement with the self-sense there. But he's, he's pointing to important differences. He's pointing to what's skillful and what isn't skillful is what it comes down to in how he, he describes these things as binaries. But he's treating them, each end of the binary, in exactly the same way, the same matter-of-fact way. So this is a very important pointing Because in order to have these difficult or these uh, more challenging or unwholesome states actually serve our liberation, we have to untangle the binary knot. We have to untangle our mind's uh, conditioned tendency to not regard all things with e- as having equal valence. We attend to different things differently. This is a conditioned reaction and there's no uh, 
judgment about this, but we attend to what's pleasant in one way, we attend to what's unpleasant in another way, we attend to what's neutral in a different way. Whether these are sense experiences, whether these are mental experiences, no matter what mind door they're at, we treat it different. We treat things differently, largely dependent on Vedana. And the Buddha says, no, 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 in order to clearly see it all, in order to really be able to understand how suffering is created and how suffering can be liberated, you have to learn to see it with the same set of eyes. To treat it in a a certain way the same, regardless of whether it's skillful or whether it's unskillful, regardless of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You want to be mindfully connected to it, receptive and skillful in relationship to what is known. So that means that in order to be able to do that, we have to learn how to include it all. So we have to go against our conditioned tendency to struggle with the content of our mind stream and instead learn how to be in connection with whatever arises and passes away in a way that has balance in it, that has mindfulness in it. So the definition of the task is basically learning to acknowledge and hold with kindness all of our experience And that's how we come to understanding and peace. And you can see the role of metta in being able to do this. Because just in the same way that metta, when it's developed, when it becomes uh, well-established in the mind, is willing to extend the same goodwill, the same kindness, towards beings regardless of whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, regardless of whether they're female or male or they're in woeful states or they're pleasant or they're difficult, they're enemies, if they're intimates, it learns to treat it all in the same kind of way. In the practice of mindfulness, we're really being called on to develop the capacity to relate to whatever we experience with that same kind of evenness of attention. And in order for that to be possible, there has to be goodwill in the mind. The mind has to be willing to touch what has arisen to be known. And it's really by opening with love to what's difficult and unacceptable in ourselves that we begin the process of ending the war with our own conditioning. And we become empowered to use this very material that arises in the body and mind as the foundation for an awareness which extends beyond preference and which is able to hold all that is. So if you're gonna look at an image for this kind of transformation of mind, 
An image might be a pine tree splitting a rock. I remember once walking on one of the local roads here and I saw this large rock and I saw this pine tree that seemingly was like growing right out of this split in the middle of the rock. And you could tell by looking at this closely that this started with probably a small crack and a small seed which took hold, got just enough moisture, got just enough going in terms of roots that it was actually able to grow even in very inhospitable conditions and it actually developed the power to break through the limitations of the situation in which it started its growth. And this process of the mind transforming itself is very much like that. Right? You don't start as a big pine tree. (laughs) You grow into a big pine tree. You work with the seed of awareness, the seed of wholesomeness, the seed of goodness that's present in the mind stream at any particular time. There is a way that we can learn how to actually use our unwholesome states almost like compost. I remember once I thought, ah, I know what this reminds me of. This is kind of like composting. And I started to kind of research composting and how that's described. And one of the first rules that I noticed with composting was, do not apply manure directly on your garden. I thought, oh, do not apply manure directly on your garden. And they explained that, you know, if you just put the, the poop on there, directly with nothing else, it actually would burn your plants up. Wouldn't be helpful. You have to mix it with other things. You had some other additives had to be mixed in. And then you would have a good fertilizer for your garden. And these unwholesome states are like that. I mean, you can think of them as poop if you want. You don't want to let good poop go to waste, you know? You leaven it with mindfulness. Apply some metta in your effort, some faith, some of the paramis, mix it together. You've got something you can use. You've got something that actually will support the growth of the seed of wholesome states that are within you. So we can use these states. This is the basic takeaway point, right? They're, they sh- they're not our orphan children. We shouldn't treat them like our orphan children, right? These are states that need our maternal and paternal care and kind investigation in order to return to their place within a mind stream which is awakened, So we can move from this process of having parts of our mind stream not visible to us, parts of our mind stream be places that we condemn, that we close off to, that we judge, that we suffer from, that we disown. 
and move in the direction of having a mind stream that's transparent to itself, that sees the, its arisings and passings away, that doesn't need to get in a fight with anything that it knows, that can accept everything that's present there, see it as it is, not make anything out of it, not make a story out of it, not turn it into evidence, not seize it with pride, not make it about itself, just allow it to be as it is, undisturbed. So this is possible for all of us, and this is a gradual process of learning to work with what's immediately present, what's there right in front of us. But at some point we have to be able to see through this fence that we have around different parts of our experience. Because commonly we experience the mind as being kind of siloed, right? There's certain things that arise and then they're kind of like, and then there's certain other things and there, there's certain senses that we don't connect with, we don't know. Information comes in, we're not aware of what it is, but there is a way that the whole thing can be liberated. And this is the process that we're undertaking of bringing the illumination of mindfulness to what is currently not seen. And how do you do that? By just attending to what you can see. Attending to what you can see. Not by looking for different or looking for more. Looking right at what's there, what's right there in the foreground to be seen. Then other things arise to be known, arise to be seen with the mind staying in the present, attending in the same consistent way with the same valence to things as they unfold. Bringing the skillful to the unskillful, bringing mindfulness, bringing wisdom, bringing metta to whatever arises to be known. And this is the path of purification. You know, sometimes it's described in very dry and technical terms. But basically what it's about is establishing continuous mindfulness, starting to see experience as a flow of arising and passing, conditioned events, not claiming ownership of what arises and passes passes away, letting go of struggle with content. Like a stream that's allowed to run without interference, the mind has the capacity to purify itself. So, We don't have to worry so much about the poop. You know, the poop (laughs) will take care of itself. It's conditioned to, it breaks down, it disintegrates, it transforms. As long as there's mindfulness there in the mix, There's a way that we can trust this process of opening 
trust that on some deep level the mind does know the direction of return to clarity. So let's just let that settle. May we all walk this ancient spiral path and not be deterred by any of the conditions that we might experience, knowing them all to be conditioned arisings and without essential nature. All things are void of self and are not capable of pro- providing lasting satisfaction, neither are they capable of, prov- of causing lasting harm. May we awaken this to this truth and trust the unfolding of things, trust our own good nature and our commitment to awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.